Oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live from the Table, the official podcast of the Comedy Cellar. My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm here without, without Dan Natterman this week. Uh, but have no fear. We have Periel Ashenbrand is here, who is going to introduce our guest. Go ahead, Periel. Come Hi. Our guest today is David Falkenflick. He um, was, this might be one of the best bios ever, was described by Geraldo Rivera of Fox News as, quote, a really weak-kneed, backstabbing, sweaty-palmed reporter. Others have been kinder. The Columbia Journalism Review gave him a, quote-unquote, laurel for reporting that immediately led to the U.S. military to institute safety measures for journalists in Baghdad. He's based in New York City. And he serves as NPR's media correspondent. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Welcome, uh, Dave. Appreciate it. Did he authorize that introduction? It's his... In, it's his bio on NPR's website. Oh, okay, okay. What was the beef with Haram? I mean, did you really think I would, like, go rogue and, like, read that from, like, Wikipedia or something? Like, is that how little credit you actually give me? I, Don't I, answer. I think that would be a reasonable <laughs> interpretation from the question. So go ahead. So t- I'm just curious. What, what, what was the beef with Geraldo Rivera before we get into other stuff? So uh, and let's offer a little footnote. As of this past uh, seven days or so, um, no longer of Fox News. I know. I know. <laughs> he got uh, he's, quit. Uh, right. He's uh, they've taken their leave of each other. And no doubt of each other's senses. Uh, so he, he uh, <laughs> was uh, the first uh, chief war correspondent for Fox News back after the uh, Invasion of Afghanistan in late 2001, and I did a story which showed that he was um, hundreds of miles away from the site where uh, American bombs had killed American soldiers and Afghan allies in what's called a friendly fire incident. He prayed, he went down to his knees, he talked about it, he showed himself on video praying. Uh, Very moving thing, he showed it again 12 hours later. Uh, And meanwhile, within moments of this a terrible event occurring and being reported, folks, even back then, uh, in the Tora Bora region of eastern Afghanistan, where the he last was at redoubt, the time, that's, what he, that's how he put it, of the dastardly one. Of the dastardly, right? There you go. <laughs> Very good. Um, they knew that it was actually in Kandahar, which was uh, Kandahar province, which is uh, about 300 miles. Uh, you know, if you think of Afghanistan as being a little bit like Texas, it's kind of in that lower wedge. Uh, and there was no way, did some reporting confirm this, There's no way he could have gotten there and back and still been in those mountains to do his reports. And so he was... Uh, you exposed him. I certainly showed that uh, piece of very personal, first-person reporting, injecting himself into this tragedy uh, to be utterly untrue. And uh, he felt that I was saying he fabricated it, which I thought was an interesting conclusion to reach. Uh, and, uh, you know, went on sort of his own holy war to try to take me out as a result. But it was all rhetorical and a lot of it for show. This is a, there's a long series of these reporters getting uh, caught out there doing stuff like this. The, the, the funniest ones are like the weather, the weather reporter and pretends to be in the storm and then somebody walking yeah. through the puddle. <laughs> uh, that is a pretty glorious piece of video right there. <laughs> That's one of the best things ever. But uh, Brian Williams, didn't he... Uh, 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 didn't he get in trouble? Wait, but he, he made something up. Uh. Williams talked about uh, an incident happening in Afghanistan as though he had come under fire. <laughs> when Similar, he was, right? Uh, and in fact, it was that a team ahead of him, a uh, military crew that I think was in the same troop that he was accompanying, uh, they had been shot on when they went there. Um, I think that it was one of those things where he told the story 
correctly initially, and then it became a little bit blurred and a little bit blurred, and finally he ended up telling it in this compressed way. Are you saying he didn't know he was lying? I'm saying he absolutely told a version of events that wasn't true, and I think that he... uh, and he talked about it on the air, which was really the fatal flaw. It wasn't just he was recounting an anecdote uh, off the cuff. This was on the air in a script, and it was a problem. I mean, it was really a problem. People at NBC, I think Tom Brokaw took a great exception to it, but others as well. Um, and it's, it's very tempting. It's, it's, I think it's a very easy temptation to fall into, is to put yourself, because broadcast is often an incredibly personalized way of, uh, of telling stories about what's happening. It's a way to make it immediate. It's a way to say, look, I can vouch for this with my own eyes. Uh, and it's also obviously a way of glorifying yourself. And I think all of that became very seductive as he surrounded himself with uh, uh, veterans of the Iraq War. I mean, it, it glorifies yourself. It makes you a better raconteur. Is that the right word? Yeah, so, yeah. very nice. Uh, um, uh, she says yes, but she doesn't really know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's a big Francophile over here. I, I that's fine. That's what they got Al Capone on, right? Yeah. Being raconteur. Um, uh, and... <laughs> And uh, and you know you, you embellish a detail and you and you notice the the heightened uh, attention you get and over time it accretes you know what accretes mean and uh, and it's brutal. <laughs> we, this is he's trying, thing he's with trying to ingratiate a, himself she, to me because he knows uh, I'm mad at him because she has like a, a master's degree in something to do with the English language um, or, or actually the English language <laughs> English language. So um, who else? Who else on top of your head? Who else did this kind of stuff? Uh, there was a guy uh, named Jack Kelly, who was the chief foreign correspondent for USA Today, who right around the same time as the Iraq War, a year or two later, uh, actually right around the time of the invasion of Iraq, give or take, um, was found to have fabricated um, probably a couple dozen stories for USA Today. Wow. Uh, and there were things like he talked about how he was present in, I think, Jerusalem uh, near a bombing that took place uh, at a pizzeria and he saw a person's head roll by and his eyes close. Now, even in the moment, editor should have been <laughs> saying, wait, wait, you saw what now? You know, it was, it was pretty spectacular. The Washington Post revealed it. Uh, uh, actually, Howard Kurtz now of Fox News um, first exposed this. I was able to find some other instances and additionally, and finally the newspaper ultimately engaged in a, a very thorough uh, checking uh, of his reporting and found that he had done this. Like some of it was he uh, made up quotes and he put them in one story I found, God, I haven't thought about this in almost two decades, but he, he put quotes in the mouth of, I think a top United Nations official. And um, the, uh, a spokesman, I reached the spokesman for this international agency who at this point was in the Solomon Islands and no longer in Switzerland. And he was like, uh, no, those were things closely linked to what I said at a bar with him six hours earlier, but it wasn't what this guy said striding out, refusing to comment, but said, you know, something angrily at him. You know, so, you know, did he invent the entire story in that instance? No. Was there an actual bombing on the streets of Jerusalem that Jack Kelly was reporting on? Yes. But, you know, reporters need to be, we're already human. We're already fallible. We already are mortal. We make mistakes. We need to be doing our best to get it as honest as we can because we're not going to get it perfect all the time anyway. Well, I got to tell you, and, and what should I say first? Well, um, one has to assume that reporting from the 30s, or, or, or at some point back in time when you go back and read old newspaper accounts, which then become the basis of history books and blah, 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 
they're highly unreliable for, for the reasons you're saying, because there was no way to expose that stuff then. There was no way to get the word out that somebody lied about you to a, a mass audience. The temptations were unbelievable, and yet it persists to this day. In my own experience with the press, I've been uh, involved in a, a certain number of stories and was just appalled and shocked at the, the distortion in the way they changed my quotes, refused to run my quotes. Michael Barbaro edited my, my, my statements on the Times pod, uh, Daily Podcast. Just um, the things that you wouldn't believe unless you were the, actually in the thick of it, you know? Just uh, a total kind of... Can I ask, just because I'm, sure. I'm not aware of this particular episode, uh, was it, and there's a reason I ask this. You can so, ask. But was it that he took your comments and made it seem as though you were saying something opposed to what you were actually saying? Or was it that he didn't include all of the context or that some of the statements were not in perfect sequence? Well, as I recall, this is, this is a number of years ago already, and, I don't, and stupidly I didn't record it myself. I can tell you the whole Michael Barbaro story. But uh, as I recall, he created paragraphs that were things that I said but that elided elided which left out um, she's had enough to hear with me uh, which which left out points that he found challenging or inconvenient to the narrative that he was trying to paint about me so the, it, it, was, it was not edited in a way that I think anybody could consider intellectually honest in the sense that if a listener had heard what ran and then heard what it was actually said, they'd be like, oh, well, that's, that's, that's different than, that gives me a different impression than what he said. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the standard. I understand kind of what you're getting at is that when you have two hours of material and you have to edit it down to, to a time frame of a, of a podcast, decisions have to be made. But that's where the integrity of the reporter has to come through, and he didn't have it, in my opinion. And I find him, by and large, to be credible and creditable, but, you know, I've certainly reported on controversies that have surrounded some of his his choices as well. But what what I was going to say I could prove to you that you're wrong about that one, but go ahead. (laughs) No, no, but what I was going to say was, the reason I asked in some part is that I'm a former newspaper guy, and then I've been in broadcasting for... uh, uh, about uh, over 18 years now, so longer than, than I did newspapers. But the way in which they represent quotations are different. So, for example, in a newspaper, at least in a mainstream legacy news organization, if you, let's say you say seven sentences a row, and I decide to do sentences one, two, four, and seven, I have to either break up the stuff between two and four and four and seven with a comma he said, you know, close the quote and then start the quote anew or have an ellipses in there to indicate there's a cut. On radio, at least as, uh, at least as, uh, as NPR does it, you know, you can't make any internal cuts basically on the president of the United States and other extremely senior figures. Uh, Matters of historical importance. Right. But... Um, you can compress what people say without acknowledging you've done that. Like sometimes on 60 Minutes or some shows like that, they'll do a little swipe, like a visual swipe. So you can tell that stuff has been taken away and people can at least uh, account for that in their mind and thinking, was this taken out of context or not? If something seems jarring out of sequence. We don't do that, but we have these standards that say you have to be uh, absolutely rigidly fair to the context. And if in any reason you make an internal cut that is 
not clarifying, but uh, shears the context or changes in any way the thrust of the meeting, then that's that's conceded. That's not a professional or ethical way for us to do it. But we do different. Not everybody states. Uh, what their standards are, their approaches are out loud. And so that's a problem. The New York New Yorker, for example, uh, and I don't know if this is still the case, but it has these long, gorgeous, uninterrupted paragraphs of people speaking so eloquently. And what they're really doing is taping them and compressing the heck out of it, or at least it used to be the case. And you just wouldn't know that all the you knows are taken out or or that that there's certain kinds of things that were seen as extraneous by the writers and the editors. Yeah, well, I had, I had a recent article in the New Yorker about us too, Emma Green, and she wouldn't even... This, well, both these people, both Emma Green and Barbaro, after the articles came out and I um, registered detailed uh, complaints about them, uh, neither of them ever, ever speak to me again or answer me or, or well, I guess, I guess she just answered like no. But uh, Emma Green wouldn't come on the podcast to discuss the articles she had written about us. The, the, uh, the fact-checking with The New Yorker went so bad that I called it to a halt and I demanded that an editor or, or, or the reporter call me because this just wasn't accurate. And um, they said that somebody wouldn't and nobody did and they ran the story anyway. So, but with uh, Barbaro, this was about the Louis C.K. thing. Now, now you know, I, I don't want to be unfair. I understand reporting is in some sense an adversarial game. You're trying to... You're trying to catch the, the, the subject flat-footed. You, you, you don't want to um, give him a heads-up to what you want to ask him. So, so you, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not <clears throat> against an aggressive press. So when Barbaro first came to discuss the Louis thing, he presented it as, oh, no, I just want to catch you know, Very soft-spoken about it. I said, sure, you know. And then he came in with the, with the microphones on, from, and, and he was very aggressive with me. It got so bad that um, my wife threw him out. <laughs> She's like screaming and yelling at him. He was, he was badgering me and badgering me and badgering me. And the, but then we, we, you know, we finished the interview and that was that. And then, um, but then this is where I thought it, it crossed the line, even this is without the editing. Then um, about three weeks later or four weeks later, I get a call from his office. Michael just, uh, he's just about ready to run it. He just wants to ask you um, a quick question about this, your new policy about letting people leave um, if they're unhappy, if somebody like Louis shows up, we call it swim at your own risk policy. I said, sure, tell me you can call me. So he calls me up and actually never even asks me about that and starts badgering me again for 45 minutes on the phone. You can hear it on the, on the podcast. You should go back and listen to it. I should. And, um, and he sa says stuff like, well, why are you blaming the victims? And I'm screaming and blaming the victims. And you tell me right now one thing that I've said about blaming the. How dare you say such things? You're gonna. You're trying to ruin me. It got very, very heated. Um, he never actually asked me the questions that uh, he claimed he was calling about to ask. And then they ran this whole. He must have had two hours by now of material down in 20 minutes. He cut out every single case, every single point in time where I was making animated and, and, and adamant uh, arguments to him, objecting to the kind of questions he was asking. Now, I get that. He can do that, but it's not honest what went on. When he asked me a question about uh, would I put Bill Cosby on, and I answered very carefully because it's a very delicate question, and he cut out a lot of the question, the answer, and I panicked about the, an uh, the way it is. And I, I called. I said, listen, um, uh, I want to speak to Michael about um, maybe adding in one 
more sentence in that answer because I, I think this could um, harm me, and it's not. It's it leaves out something very important that I said. And there's Mike. Yeah, Michael will um, call you tomorrow at two o'clock or whatever it is. And so at two o'clock, I waited for the call. The call never came, and they've ghosted me ever since. They never got another return email. Like all into into it because by two o'clock the next day. He had gotten such terrible reaction to this interview he did with me towards his behavior in, in the thing. I, I, and I know this already because of um, somebody, I won't say his name, but you know who he is, who used to work there, who then left there, and who I, I, I know with uh, some degree of certainty everything that was going on behind the curtain at that time. And it wasn't pretty. And, uh, you know, that's what it is. And, of course, I, I asked uh, if I could get a audio transcript, audio or the transcript of my interview, and <laughs> they weren't going to give me that either. Mm-hmm. So, so that was that. So anyway, but I've had, but the, the ultimate story, and this is your interview, but I'll just tell you, so it was when um, in, that, in that incident, viewers, listeners have heard this, when um, they wanted me to give a statement as why, it, why I made the decision to let Louis C.K. perform here, I said, well, first I said, well, I'll only, only answer if you promise to run the answer verbatim. And they said, she said, I don't see a problem with that. I should have known better. And then um, my answer was, well, just a couple of weeks ago, Monica Lewinsky was disinvited from a, an event because Bill Clinton was coming and Mike Tyson is on Broadway, so I don't see any clear standard here which was any different. And that was my reason. And, um, and it really was my reason. And she said, well, if you're going to mention Bill Clinton, we can't run it. The person at the time said this. Yeah. I said, what do you mean you can't run it? I said, that's my answer. If you put the, if it was on TV and you put the microphone, you asked me on TV, that's what I would have said. You wouldn't be able to say, well, we're not going to run it if you mention Bill Clinton. So if you go back to the article, you'll see they, they, they changed my quote. They massaged it. They took this out, whatever. It, it wasn't what I said. It wasn't, it wasn't um, contradictory to what I said. But again, this is going back to like how you imagine 1930s news. But it wasn't what I said. <laughs> they reported as what I said. It's, as I said, not directly contradictory to what I said, but it's not me. It's not the way I would have said something when my children read it and they think, oh, that's what daddy said. It's, it's not what daddy said. Daddy had, a, daddy had a stronger answer than that. But the Times wouldn't run it because it said Bill Clinton. Now, would the Times have made the same thing if I said something about Donald Trump? Of course not. Of course not. They would know, we're not going to run that if you're going to cast any aspersions about Donald Trump. Casting aspersions is my own spin on it. They didn't say that. Sure, sure. They said, then we'd have to give so much background to the story that we can't, you know. Look, there are, moments, there are moments in a story where if somebody's illusion yes, or defense is, is, is going to, you know, complicate things, I can understand that. Obviously, Bill Clinton is somebody that most Americans know the story on instinctively and a, a, a brief illusion. Not knowing the details of all that you're talking about, I do remember, you know, the issue at stake that that you were being interviewed about at the time, uh, and it would strike me that that would be a moment because of the sensitivity of what was being talked about and the accusations and claims being made on various sides, uh, and the moment it was being done in, you know, that that would be a moment at which one would take particular care to be fair to all sides. You know, one of the things that I like about the way NPR approaches things is we want to as best we can represent people in their own voices. Yeah. And so that people on all kinds of different sides of issues feel that they are not only understood, but heard. And uh, 
you know, it would seem to me in that moment, again, not, I, this is news to me because I didn't follow the, the controversy over the coverage in quite that way at the time and perhaps shame on me for it. No. But it, uh, you know, if the Times is in that moment talking about questions of how freedom of speech plays out and satire plays out uh, and the ability to offend in making social comedy and social commentary plays out in a moment of, you know, a new appreciation, a new interpretation of where boundaries should be because of uh, long neglected uh, or overlooked problems that are sort of erupted to the surface. Um, it would seem to me that would be a moment where one would want to be painstaking to make sure that all sides were reflected in their own words, their thoughts in context and all those things, because it's a, a, what can I say? No side has a complete monopoly on being right in these matters because people are coming at this not always, but often out of intentions that, that are real and, 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 and motives that are real. But at the same time, that means that no matter who they assume is acting right, acting wrong, they got to listen. Everybody's got to listen. I think that much has to happen. I, I, I agree, and I would go even further than you because there is something that I believe, which is that um, when you're reporting the news, you report the news. If there's a person who is newsworthy who did something, and you say, why did you do this? It's not for you to complain, I did it because, uh, because I heard voices on my head. Whatever the reason is, you're reporting what he said. You're not endorsing it. If he says something that's embarrassing to some public figure, well, that's the news. Well, like you're not you're not in business to protect the public figure. God forbid. You're actually in business, basically for the opposite, right? But at at, at minimum, you can you can you have to grin and bear it because he's telling you why he did what it is you're reporting on. And I don't see, I don't even see any latitude there, but you could say in brackets, who's been accused of rape by Paula Jones. But to go further, this was at a time when many people in the Democratic Party were reconsidering why it is exactly that they believed Bill Clinton and why didn't they believe Paula Jones and all women. This is during the all women should be believed period, which Louis got caught up in. We're past that now. We, we don't think that all women should be believed anymore. Well, we, we don't anymore. <laughs> Look at uh, Tara Reid. I mean, we, we think we're back to saying we, should, we shouldn't dismiss women, God forbid, but we are actually able to look at countervailing facts and, and consider that perhaps there's, we, we, there are sides yeah. to a story. We're back. I think, I'd say we're back to that, thank God. Which is not to say that too often in our history, blah, 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 women were dismissed and not believed. And we, we all, I think, all right-thinking people kind of get this whole story, right? The pendulum went here, the pendulum there, and, and, and hopefully it's in, a, it's in a better place now. But it, it was just ridiculous. All of which is to say, I don't trust the news. All right, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now we have a title for the show. <laughs> now, the reason, the reason you came up on my radar was because of articles that you wrote about um, – Tucker Carlson and his firing, Don Lemon and his firing. And I find that stuff fascinating. And, of course, Apparel and I had words because I wanted you on three months ago when it was, you know, a hot story. Oh, don't blame her. Oh, no, don't I blame, blame her. It won't matter what you say. It's all me. <laughs> so, um, but maybe, we, maybe this is still interesting. To be honest, she warned me about the fancy words, and I had real trepidation <laughs> at that point. Maybe this is still interesting because, and I get, so I used to be a, a Fox News lover. Back in the days of Bill O'Reilly, Charles Krauthammer, Britt Hume, 
you know, the, 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 the Beltway Boys of Fred Barnes and Mark and uh, George Will as a whole. Sure. Remember them all? Yeah. This was, and, and, and I said Bill O'Reilly already, and Bill O'Reilly even, and I'm going to put his show there even though people will roll their eyes. This to me was all first rate, interesting television to a person like me who was open-minded and enjoyed provocative ideas to like Bill Riley was a blowhard, but he had serious people on. He was debating um, when Dick Morris fed him a whole line of crap for months that Mitt Romney was going to win on November 5th or whatever. You never saw Dick Morris again. Bill Riley's like, you know, you, you got me into that. I'm done with you because you were wrong. And at this time, there was that documentary outfoxed, which is making the case that Fox News was over the line and, and just awful. And I remember saying, well, these people don't watch Fox News. Yeah, you can cherry pick, but Fox News is interesting to me. Fox News now is a piece of garbage. Really? I mean, it is nothing compared to what it was. None, George Will won't be caught dead on it. Jonah Goldberg won't be caught dead on it. Charles Krauthammer, I'm sure, is rolling over, despite being a quadriplegic, is rolling over in uh -oh. his grave. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I can't imagine any of these uh, intelligent, earnest... Uh, uh, conservative intellectuals with integrity wanting to be associated with this network anymore. So my first question to you is, and I, I assume you agree with me to some extent, what changed? Is it simply because Roger Ailes died? I think that uh, there are two things going on. Uh, one of that, that changed the nature of Fox significantly. I don't know that I'd say fundamentally, but I would say significantly. And one is the... Uh, is the, the ouster of Roger Ailes, who, like a year later, Bill O'Reilly was accused by many multiple women, in, in Ailes' case, subordinates, of sexual harassment. And, you know, he had created essentially a, what shall I say, you know, a Model T-like assembly line of uh, to enable him just to harass women, woman after woman who came through. However, he had a sense of where he wanted the network to be at any given time. Uh, and he had the stature and the... Uh, aura and intensity to enforce it. And, you know, uh, you were of an age, you know, you think of uh, what happened after the Cold War kind of stopped and uh, the Soviet Union ceased being. And, you know, Yugoslavia cracks up, basically. And there's all kinds of chaos and war and whatever. Well, you know, Tito was an autocrat and a brutal tyrant, but he kept things under control. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got to think of Roger Ailes at Fox. Ailes was a tyrant. Ailes did a lot of uh, things that were reprehensible off the air and made some choices on the air that I think were reprehensible uh, and allowed things to go a certain level. But he had the ability to say no. He fired Glenn Beck when Glenn thought that he was bigger than the network. Uh, and, and, then, and also Glenn Beck was saying crazy things. And Glenn's embarrassing. Well, it, embarrassment is sort of a judgment call. It was a problem for them. He was indulging in some of the stuff that steps right up the line of the worst anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories uh, that were going on there. He was saying other things that were just- I think Tucker's way worse, but- Unhinged. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying this is the Ailes era. Yeah. Right? And Ailes ultimately was like, he, uh, Glenn Beck thought he could get away with it because he was bigger. He was, and Ailes said, you know what? You're bigger because of the platform I afford you. You can sell all these books because I've made you into this huge star that you weren't when you were on headline news mm -hmm. and you weren't just because you were a commentator for, for ABC you know, and had a radio show. I've made you that. 
so I can take that away. And he did. And Beck is still making a ton of money, but his influence is no longer what it used to be, I think. It's fair to say. Oh, absolutely. So Ailes gets fired in 2016, dies in 2017. Um, and Rupert Murdoch, the guy who created all of this stuff, decides to kind of slide into the CEO role. And then ultimately he's given, although we don't know this, he's given the title executive chairman. And he names uh, Suzanne Scott, a longtime sort of Fox lifer who had come up through the ranks. He names her to be chief executive. She was a programming executive. There are many people who feel loyalty to her or like her or feel that she's smart. Uh, she doesn't command the respect, the stature. She's unknown outside of Fox, basically, except for the fact that she's now holds this title within Fox, and they don't fear her. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson basically made very clear, you know, his PR was not going to be handled by her top PR executives. He didn't want anything to do with them. In Roger Ailes' world, he would have said, you're damn right you're going to... No, she doesn't have that ability to do it. So he ends up uh, being handled by, in, in some ways, Raj Shah, a former Trump administration official who had gone and joined Fox's parent company, Fox Corp. That's just a weird workaround that Tucker can do because what? He's kind of bigger or feels that he's bigger than the network and they let him get away with it until way too late from their standpoint. So I think that Roger Ailes' departure is a big thing. I also think that Trump kind of pulled uh, Fox's viewership away from Fox where they had to sprint to catch up a lot of the time and it made them become more extreme and it made them less predictable and it made them reactive. Uh, in ways that uh, Murdoch didn't like, but was the compromise he struck with himself for two reasons. One, they had mega ratings. You know, they one of their top executive, former top executives, Bill Shine, told me uh, back when I was doing a profile on Glenn Beck. He said, look, we function very well as the voice of opposition. We got our legs when Clinton was in office and we had impeachment crisis. That was great for us. In the age of Obama, we'll do great. And you know what? They did great. They ran Benghazi as hard as could possibly be done. They played the race card. There's all this other, whatever, fine. Uh, they did great under Trump, ratings-wise. It didn't feel good inside. They didn't like it. But for the individuals who decided to be on board, it was incredibly profitable. So Murdoch got that. And he also got the fact that for the first time, he got what he already had in all these other countries where he operated in, particularly his, the two other great English-speaking nations where he had such a strong presence in his native Australia, in the UK, where he had been before he came really here. He had a bat phone in the prime minister's office in each of those countries. Here, he finally had a bat phone in the White House where somebody would be on the phone to him all the time. And Trump and he talked all the time. He got a lot of good you know, interventions on things that he cared about from the Trump administration and from Trump himself. Um, and so that was the deal that Murdoch struck. But as a result, it meant that, you know, he was along for the ride and, the, you know, Trump is erratic. Trump isn't consistent. He's not predictable. He, had, on some things, his rhetoric is exceptionally extreme. And if you don't uh, distance yourself from that, you're going to go all in on that stuff. And suddenly your own hosts are saying things that are long. I mean, I, I assume that's the kind of stuff that, that didn't do it for you as a viewer. Well, uh, uh, let me come back to what you just said. Um, I, I, I hear you doing something which I, I hear all the time, um, which I don't agree with. And I, you, you, might, you might disagree that you're doing what, with what I'm, what I'm about to say. Hit or, me. Or, Bring or, it. Or, yeah, or, you, or you might say, oh, I never thought of that. Um, by analogy, for instance, when conservative Supreme Court justices come down with decisions— there is always some Machiavellian analysis that 
that explains why they did what they did because of this, because of Trump, because of who appointed them, whatever it is. Almost never do you read from someone who disagrees with them, well, it's, you know, this person has a different worldview. This, this, this opinion is true to their view. That it has integrity. It's what, it's what many smart law professors believe, and I just disagree. The Federalist Society it has, a, has, a, has an intellectual, intellectually rigorous argument that they make, and um, they, they'll always try to attribute it to something. Even now, there was a story about how one of Clarence Thomas's law clerks got a Venmo right. reimbursement for some party, and that clerk also worked on the affirmative. Like, in the innuendo to someone who doesn't really know much about this stuff was somehow that maybe this money led to Clarence Thomas voting against affirmative action as if there was any chance in hell that if Clarence Thomas would have ever voted. It was so absurd. I'm not saying... I don't know whether the taking the Venmo money passed ethics muster. But you're saying or this not. is where he lives anyway. Obviously, obviously, you think if Venmo in the other way would have gotten him to vote to uphold affirmative action, it's absurd. But but everything has to be viewed in terms of that way. Similarly with Fox News, I'm I'm saying that I think Fox News had integrity at a certain time, and I think this came from Roger Ailes. I also would add to this that in Jim Cramer's autobiography, he spoke very highly of Roger Ailes, and he said Roger Ailes loves a good honest debate. When he was at CNBC. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is who he was. Yeah. And everything that uh, I saw at Fox at that time represented to me a guy who was trying to, certainly trying to make sure that these arguments and these points of view were heard in a way that they weren't heard otherwise, but the debate was always on the up and up. And then it, it, so I would say that whatever, I don't care whether it was a good person, a bad person. This is kind of an ad hominem. It's kind of an overlay. It doesn't matter to, to what we're talking about. Let's, let's just stipulate he was a creep. A lot of great people have been creeps. We have Martin Luther King egging on a rape, right? This was a story not too long ago. So, or a sexual, some sort of sexual uh, assault. I, I'm not familiar with that. You don't that, know this but, story? But we can, we can revisit oh, okay. it. Yeah, we're, we've yeah. got like, we're like four tabs deep here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so like, I have to add that because people say, well, you, you know, they'll, they'll say you, you're soft on this or soft on that. I'm saying it's, it's not really relevant. point is that there's plenty of evidence that this guy ran a network which definitely made its business to present stories that were interesting to conservative-minded people. But at that time, every point of view, every good refutation of these arguments was on that show. Bill O'Reilly had David Korn on every week. You know, you could the whole the whole cast of liberal characters who were regulars on the O'Reilly Factor, and he let them speak. You know, and sometimes they got the better of him. Uh, that's no longer the case. Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, these people—they bring on people who are either they're never going to let speak, or like the you know, total empty suits, or they really more often just bring on people who agree with them. That's right, Tucker, you're right. Just amplify what Tucker has already said. O'Reilly's class thing was, where am I wrong? Tucker doesn't say, where am I wrong? His first guest is always tell him that he was right. And there's no limits. You, uh, bioweapons labs in Ukraine, false flags of January 6th. I mean, you can go on and on and on with this. Now he's on Twitter. If you've seen him, like uh the, the we know now that the Department of Defense is studying alien spacecraft for weapons programs. I mean, this is no crazier than RFK Jr. This is as crazy as it gets. And I'm just saying there's no way that Roger Ailes would have had crazy uh, stuff like that without integrity on his network. I don't think it had to do with all that other stuff. 
And Glenn Beck is the perfect example. He's making a fortune from Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck was Looney Tunes, and this was humiliating to Glenn him. Beck was trafficking in stuff that was a problem and, and was humiliating for Roger because Roger's just like, Roger, I mean, part of why what Roger did off the air matters because it's because I believe from my reporting, not from surmising, that it informed what he did allow, and allowed on the air. But that said, what Beck did was beyond what Beck did really did um, not beyond what Tucker was doing. No, I'm talking about for that era. Yeah, yeah. Was beyond, and what Tucker is doing now is essentially saying my audience is migrating from the more conservative and extreme reaches of Fox News that we knew to QAnon, or to past Breitbart, you know, past um, the Daily Wire. You know, it's not just that they're real conservative. It's not just that they'll oppose anybody who's a Democrat, uh, but. Uh, I'm showing him the headline about Martin Luther King. I'm, I'm, this, was, this was big news a few years ago. It's quite a headline. Oh, it was a, it was a very big. So yeah, yeah. you know, he was uh, he was. You know what Carlson is doing is trying to anticipate where the audience is, and the audience rewarded him for it. But it means that they're not. You know, I interviewed a woman who was a former democratic liberal voice on fox on the record who's that her name julie raginsky oh yeah I, oh, I was on a show with her she's terrific so she used to be a fox regular for years uh and she was talking about jesse waters i was profiling oh, him let's for talk a about him. That, yeah, go ahead. that ran uh what day is today wednesday, wednesday. so wednesday. ran monday morning ran a couple yeah, days yeah. ago and uh I she said look here. she said look I didn't agree with anything out of O'Reilly or Hannity, or for that matter, she acknowledged later, Carlson's mouth. But they were at least doing what Fox considered to be analysis of serious news. You know, and that's what used to be. You know, Carlson clearly uh, engaged in what most people who report and most people who look at the stuff consider to be batshittery. I mean, it's just off the charts. And also got people killed with this vaccine denial. And the vaccine denial stuff was very tough at a time when, and this is why the off the record, or excuse me, off the air, on the air stuff matters, at a time where Fox corporately was insisting on protocols, was insisting on proof, uh, on masking, was insisting on people showing whether or not they'd well, been he's vaccinated. Well, he's not responsible for that. Doesn't matter. What I'm saying is Fox is allowing things to go forward on the air, and in some ways, good for them in, in a free speech way. Yeah, yeah. But- I'm not particularly it's, moved by that argument. But. Well, but I, I think it's worth pointing out. Why does it matter to me that, 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 they, that they would not allow themselves to do, even those very people to do at Fox headquarters in New York? Why does it matter? Well, I think it's analogous to the reason I'm, that— I, I'm going I'm to interrupt you and tell you I, I don't think you would even hold to that because if I give you the counterfactual that Fox is anti-vax, not asking anybody out there, and Tucker Carlson was going on there every day and saying, people should be vaccinated, people should be vaccinated— you wouldn't say bull about Fox Corp and the reason have, why, allowing the contrary view. If, if I might, the reason why I think there's a difference and you can disagree yeah. is that although there are some problems with the way in which our public health establishment has approached the pandemic, oh. uh, and I don't want to get all the way in that. Yeah. Have you seen the latest? Stop. Yeah. <laughs> You're just saying, although there are some problems, the science does show that the vaccines work. They don't necessarily work in all the ways that people said, but we are much better off as a nation and it as a society for our having developed those vaccines. Oh, yeah. That is a miracle. Absolutely. So, so, and in such short time. So I'm saying that there is an empirical grounded, it's not just, well, if you did the inverse, it's the same. Well, like there is a value judgment to, it's not that there's debate as in saying, listen, um, in society, uh, there are 
parts of society, uh, some, some of which have to do with race and class and other things and identity that have not uh, attained the same education levels or the same economic levels. Some people want affirmative action. Other people want there to be uh, uh, nothing because they believe in Adam Smith. A third say that we should do things on a class basis and help first generation kids go to college so that Harvard's not advantaging, you know, black legacy, uh, you know, the, the children of black alumni, you know, like there are all kinds of different arguments. Those are things where it seems to me that those are policy disputes. In terms of the vaccine, it's an example in which we can say, well, the science, although, again, you can say, and I believe, there are problems in which, in the ways in which the public health establishment talked to the public and made some conclusions and talked more concretely about things that were more ambiguous. This science again and again shows that we're blessed to have had the vaccines that empirically they made a huge difference in saving tons of lives. And so there's a difference in putting out information that cuts against that, even if your policies uh, uh, contradict it, uh, than not. I don't think the inverse thing, but let me just get to your original point if I could. Yeah. The original point about drawing conclusions is that when we talk about things like Tucker Carlson at the moment, the lawsuit that just happened and that was settled for almost $800 million by Fox, far and away the largest such thing that, of which I'm aware oh, yeah. in First Amendment law as a settlement or payment, matters because we know in their own words, I reported at the time that people at Fox knew that they, their colleagues were putting things on the air that were not true about election fraud and other things. But you don't have to rely on me because we've gotten all these real-time snapshots of what people were saying to each other you know, these excited utterances that people were texting and emailing. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, their eight, nine, and 10 o'clock hosts knew that the claims were false. They knew that people coming well, forward- Why are you like gonna this, force me to defend these people? I know, I, I, I know. Couldn't but disagree this, with you more. Am I saying that you read the emails and you felt they weren't saying that? Uh, well, I don't, I, I don't wanna sidetrack you, I'll let you finish your point, then I'm gonna- My, I can, my I'm point gonna, is I, only yeah. that, um, Fox's leadership felt compelled to keep letting them do that because their audience wouldn't accept it if they didn't. Yeah. And so they lost control in a way that I don't think Roger Ailes would have done, but they lost control in part because the Trump years, very different than if Romney had won or George W. Yeah. Now, Bush or other Let things. me tell you why I think that's very wrong. Tell me. First of all, um, Tucker, Tucker is the exception here because Tucker actually uh, – had it up to here with Sidney Powell and went on a rant against her that she hadn't backed anything up. So Tucker, although he is the fall guy here somehow, he was not representative of the Bartiromo and uh, Lou Dobbs. Yes and no. He was actually of those, and, and the lawyers for Dominion suing Fox said this in open court. He was the least worst of the four people that were the host that they were suing along with Fox, Bartiromo, Dobbs. Well, uh, you, you, you know, you have to get into a thing like how do you how do you judge this? Because one day he said something, but there's no question that I, I'm just saying after, but after the hold on, hold after on. after January sixth, yeah, he brings on Mike Lindell, and he doesn't do what he had done so admirably. But Mike Lindell didn't in late, like in late Mike Lindell didn't didn't uh, have any. Mike Lindell's not Dominion. I, I don't know what you're saying there. Mike Lindell has no, had no, I don't remember what like Mike Lindell said. I should go back and review What Mike it, Lindell I, said was he trafficked in all these lies again yeah. and Tucker had him on and allowed him to do it. Well, even after Dominion had okay. said, this is, I, we're I, being defamed. The devil is in the details. Sure. And I don't have all the details. I did, I did, when I first wanted to get you on the show, I was up on the details. Fair. However, I think what I'm about to say is correct, which is that Tucker was very strongly on record as thinking 
that this claim about the election fraud was bullshit. Not not election fraud. That the that the that the election machines had no integrity was bullshit. Tucker was all in on other aspects of of the election being stolen, but that's not what the case is about. The case was about Dominion's voting machines, and on the on the Dominion voting machines, Tucker I think was not anywhere near. Let me put it another way: if the worst offender on Fox had been Tucker. Very different been, lawsuit. There would be no lawsuit here. There would be no lawsuit. It was uh, uh, um, uh, Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo who were really all in. But And, and as, and as uh, Murdoch said, Hannity a bit. Maybe Hannity a bit. But this is the thing. The reason I do strongly disagree with you, and I, and I, and I especially disagree with reporters, I try to snap them out of this. It, they don't know. When you have the, they think they know. They're writing to each other, this is bullshit. And I'll give you a flip side in a second. But um, when you have uh, the president's lawyer saying, making factual allegations, just like when you have Johnny Cochran saying OJ was killed by, by Colombian warlords in a Colombian necktie, you put him on there. Nicole. Uh, yeah, OJ, that, yeah, that, that, yeah, it wasn't OJ. It was Nicole. Sorry. That it was, <laughs> that it was not OJ Simpson. Yeah, yeah. That it was uh, Nicole was killed by. Yeah. You can think it's bullshit. You can you can be sure that Johnny Cochran is full of shit, but it's a it's a it's a national story, and he's the lawyer, and he goes on there and he says this stuff, and he can say it every day if he wants, and unless you report, I've looked into this and it's true, that's just the way it goes. But let me give you the, why it's so dangerous. We had another story where the reporters were all sure it was bullshit, and they didn't report it. That was the Hunter Biden story, that, that right in an election time. Even though they should have known because we knew it was real, but in an election time, uh, this laptop came out. Now I, I want to get sidetracked into whether a reasonable voter should care about the laptop. You can make that argument, but that's not for us to decide. In an, voters think it was relevant to their vote. In an election time, you had people at MSNBC and all over refusing to cover the story, which was being claimed by the other side because they believed it wasn't true. That damaged their journalism. It doesn't matter what you think. If you know it's not true, then you put it out there and then you present the evidence that proves it's not true. But if, an, if a national figure is contesting an election and is presenting his, and this is what he's saying, you got to cover that. And, and I don't see, and, and, if, and, if, uh, and if there's a laptop out there which has an FBI evidence number on it, you have to cover it. You can cover that 52 intelligence officers think it's bullshit. You also have to ask, bring the FBI on and say, why is there an evidence number on this? They never did that. They, they tanked the story. They, they buried the story. I don't think, I, I think this idea that they knew it was bullshit is a very dangerous standard. Reporters don't know. The only person who could know is the Dominion software writer. That's the only person who could know that there was no problem with these voting machines. So, so let me let me. They're covering a lawsuit. They're covering a contested election. It's news. And unless one of those anchors went on there and and represented that they had factual evidence that it was true, either recklessly or knowing that it wasn't true, that's I don't see this lawsuit. I certainly don't see it to eight hundred million dollars. You're gonna you're not gonna cover the president's lawyers' claims. I don't get it. I never got that case. But I guess I'm wrong because they settled for $800 million. Yeah, and partly, 
got a little guy who's climbing. But I think they should have gone to trial. And, and by the way, there are some First Amendment attorneys who agree with me. Yeah, listen, I talked to a lot of First Amendment lawyers, some of whom were very concerned about the implications of this lawsuit and that if Fox had lost in open court, uh, that it could have uh, opened the door to further defamation well, uh, look, uh, Even the settlement. Look, imagine this settlement now. Now, we'd like to think that the Times and the MSNBC will have learned a lesson from this Hunter Biden thing because it's really – it looks ridiculous. I mean Biden was on the debate saying it's a hoax, and they never even – checked into it he knew and and so, so, can i can wait, i wait, wait, almost all, right, all right now instead of learning the lesson well next time something like this happens we're not going to jump to a conclusion like that now they're like well listen next time something like this happens if we have emails between us saying that we think this is bullshit we better not cover it because it could turn out to actually be bullshit and then they're gonna they're gonna throw these emails on our face but my my point is, who cares if the reporters thought it was bullshit? Did they know it was bullshit? How did they know it was bullshit? Did they have access to the voting machines? Did they have access to the software? They don't know that it's bullshit. I thought it was bullshit. I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm making a a a a, a, a objective case here, and it's very easy to confuse the objective case with you know your opinion about things. I never thought these election machines were rigged. But mostly I didn't think that because when all these accusations were made, then I heard the other side. What if the accusations had never been covered? What if it just, what if it just focused, was just spread around Twitter? I mean, you have to be able to talk about this stuff. I, I didn't get, I don't get any of it. I go, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of terrain to cover there. Yeah. Right? Uh, so let me, let's, let's go in kind of, I guess, reverse order. Let's, what you want to deal with first, Dominion or, or Hunter? You're making a larger well, issue, but what you want to deal with first? I'm, what I'm, I'm here for you. What I'm really interested <laughs> in is that is that how ombudsman of the world. Here. How does the Dominion standard not then force MSNBC to double down on their mistake in the Hunter case? That's what I'm saying. If if you, if the idea that listen from from MSNBC's point of, MSNBC's point of view, they have a perfect mirror image case. We all think it's bullshit. We have 52 intelligence people here telling us it's bullshit. That's basically, I think, even scale to what uh, we say Fox had. They had, uh, uh, you know, they thought it was bullshit and they had X number of experts telling them it was bullshit. Neither side, as a matter of fact, MSNBC had better access to evidence that it was real because we did know, there were very few people covering it, that the FBI had had checked in this laptop a year prior. But let's just presume they were the same. So, so let's let's So you understand my point here. Now MSNBC is gonna double down next time. They did what we're telling them is that no, you did exactly the right thing by not covering that laptop. Because if you didn't believe it and you had some experts telling you it was bullshit, you shouldn't have covered it. But you got it wrong. I think that there's some lessons from the Hunter Biden thing. And I think there's some lessons from the Dominion thing. I don't think they're perfect analogs, but you may disagree and that's well, okay. Tell me where we, they're not we're allowed to tell me where they're not perfect. Well I mean, look, as a matter of full disclosure, I wrote about the Biden thing at the time. One of the things that I learned, and people, some people liked it, some people hammered me, some people, who knows. Uh, the Hunter Biden thing was initially and for months owned by the New York Post as a story. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. For better and for worse. That laptop had been shopped to the Wall Street Journal, also owned by Rupert and, and Lachlan Murdoch. The reporters there did their reporting and didn't feel they could verify it. They stepped back. That laptop was then offered to Fox News on its news side. 
its reporters tried to verify and authenticate what was in there. They couldn't, they thought that there were some signs that were complicated, not going to experts who used to be whatever, but literally looking at, they were given mirrored image of the thing, I believe, as I understand it, that they could look at. They were given it by a well, guy. Fox, Fox eventually did cover it. Let me get there. Yeah. They felt they couldn't authenticate it. So again, the reporters for Fox News, perfectly happy to go after Biden, mm-hmm. decide, you know, on a race that hinged on uh, uh, swing states that in and of themselves could go by pretty close margins. So this thing is in play. Trump could win re-election for sure. They decide they can't do it. Um. I believe there was a third site that 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 did that as well, but I can't remember. No, but, but these are. The, but what you're saying is not accurate. They, I, I'll, I'll bring up the headline now from Fox News site. Fox, no, no, just let me get there. The New York Post breaks the story. Right. So the lead byline on it belongs to a woman, smart person, but this well, was. Well, I'm going to bring up the Fox. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. It's fine, but let me get there. Like I'm going to, I'm going to let you. I, I don't mean. I'm saying this because I don't want you to think I'm not. I'm being disrespectful. Fair. Go ahead. Go ahead. After the New York Post breaks the story. Fox is liberated to cover it, in quotes, both as a controversy on its news stories and as a assertion of seeming fact on many of its opinion shows. That is different than Fox actually breaking the story. Fox get, is almost delighted for somebody else to break it. They own the controversy. It turns out it's their you know, cousin, their corporate sibling, uh, New York Post, which is owned by Murdoch's News Corp as opposed to Fox Corp. But it, it is inside the family, but they don't have ownership of it if it goes sideways. Right. The complications of it is that was a thing developed and promised weeks ahead of time by Steve Bannon, who has trafficked in some complicated and often unreliable information, uh, and given out, I believe, by Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Giuliani, who emerged as one of the least reliable figures of the Trump years, and whose Fox News' own research desk in early 2020 say, we cannot rely on him as a news source anymore. He is unreliable as an official verdict of the Fox News, not, not me. Let me just get there. The Fox News research Get there, test. get there. <laughs> oh, this is what people say to me. Like, for the love of God, and then make your point. So, fair enough. So, what we had was a story that was written by a person who was Sean Hannity's former associate producer, mm-hmm. who had not written a lot of pieces, certainly nothing of this profile, about a laptop that the Wall Street Journal and Fox News had independently felt they couldn't authenticate. Right. So, you, they're taking it to a place where... This is just true. The New York Post has different publishing standards. Even at the Post, the guy who had been assigned the lead writer I, I, on I don't piece, want to cut you off, but and, and what you're describing— This it, is the phenomenon, how it plays out. What you're out. describing is accurate at the moment in time that it was accurate. Right. But, subsequently, listen, subsequently, But absolutely. subsequently and long before the election, that changed. So, so now, now I'm going to show you. So this is Fox from October of—October 21st. What day was the election? November— Early 8th, November. Early November. Laptop connected to Hunter Biden linked to FBI money laundering probe. So at this point, and you can see the picture here, at this point in October, Fox came up with the document which had the laptop checked in at the FBI. And at that point, the notion that this was a Russian plant and all that became ridiculous. At minimum, at that point, there's no excuse for someone at the New York Times, these, these, these uh, news agencies have connections with the FBI, to then call up the FBI and say, what is this document? What do you know about the laptop? At this point, we know that Biden was lying 
after this when he said it's a hoax. It wasn't a hoax. People who watched Fox knew that it wasn't a hoax. And at that point, MSNBC continued to not cover it because they thought it was bullshit. They probably, it was shocking to me, the bubbles are so deep within journalism, they probably didn't even know that this was... Oh, no, no I, don't, I don't think that's true at all. I'd also say, like, I talked to people well, at... N- well, how do you answer pe- this? I'm trying to. Yeah. I talked to people at NPR and at the New York Times and other places, the Wall Street Journal, who were at that point going and trying to report on it and trying to validate it, trying to get their own copies. In the case of Wall Street Journal, they had one. You know, Journal got up to speed and did some very good reporting on it. Others did as well. Uh, the Times, you know, MSNBC, certainly it's not in their wheelhouse. And, you know, they should be reporting on things that are inconvenient and cut against rooting interests. I believe that. I'm in favor of a panoply of point of view outlets. Okay, but, but let's but, zoom out. The, the, the point is that in the end, a, all the major news organizations got a story tremendously wrong, obviously in some way because they, they, uh, their, their hearts were in one direction, the same way Fox's heart was in the other direction. But, but I mean, like, look— the New York Post got some of its stuff wrong, too, in those original stories. They claimed that they had proven that Joe Biden had taken a meeting with a guy that so far to date has not been proven. Like, that was a headline on one of their main pieces. No, they, from they, that, they showed a picture of him with this guy. No, no, but I'm just saying, like, go back and look at the New York Post stuff. Like, the Post stuff was probably more accurate than the, those that didn't do anything with it or initially dismissed it. Like, my problem with what happened initially— was that first social media tried to smother any sharing of the stuff from the New York Post, which I thought was wrong, uh, problematic at the time and wrong very immediately after. And secondly, those group of experts, many of whom were media commentators, sort of, uh, they phrased what they said very carefully about it bearing all the hallmarks of a Russian thing, but they allowed that to become interpreted as this is definitely a Russian uh, fabrication, and it wasn't. I find the whole Hunter Biden, first of all, I don't think Joe Biden is uh, making any unpatriotic decisions selling out the United States of America. I want to stipulate that at the top. I really don't believe that. Um, However, everybody involved in this whole story should be ashamed of themselves. If if you just change the name to uh, Donald Trump Jr., on any of this, the appointments, it's, it's, it's comical that people actually will, will, with a straight face, oh, no, we'd cover it exactly the same way. It, it's so absurd. It's so patently absurd to think that this, this level of circumstantial evidence, let me just, let's just, just as one aside, neither here nor it's quite interesting. These whistleblowers from, from the first time, I, first time I've seen whistleblowers not believed, you know, uh, wholeheartedly just uh, on principle, and there, there is always good reason to believe whistleblowers because what do they have to gain? They, they have everything to risk. They're testifying under oath. They're, you know, they, according to this story, and we know this is basically true, they knew that Hunter Biden had millions of dollars or a million dollars of money that he made at Burisma that he didn't declare in his taxes. And they let the statute of limitations lapse. Now, I've spoken to two prosecutors, one I was on vacation with recently and one who works at CNN, former prosecutor. They say, do they let the statute of limit? And they both said to me, no, the first rule in the prosecution office is you never let the statute of limitations lapse. That one bit of, of circumstantial evidence, if you knew nothing else to any seasoned reporter whom you just told not to draw inferences. I didn't. I never said don't draw would say to themselves, there's a story here. Right. 
there's and and it, and it would it would create to a, to a, to a person who's lived a very high rebuttable presumption that this was slow walked for corrupt reasons because why wouldn't they just bring that case and continue to you you bring that case so the statute of limitation doesn't toll and then you continue to investigate the rest of it before the whistleblowers came out we knew the statute of limitations had tolled and that should have been enough to activate the skeptical minds of old school reporters but we don't have old school reporters Let's anymore and that's me, really let me just point. offer something yeah you're not going to get me to argue against the idea that a powerful public officials fa- fa- immediate family members who act in a way that uh, who derive income from problematic sources uh, you know, I'm not going to argue they shouldn't be reported. I think they absolutely should be reported on. You know, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Uh, not only uh, Hunter Biden, I think uh, the president's bro- brother James. Like there are other figures whose actions deserve tough scrutiny, as did, uh, you know, uh, the president's uh, ch- children, Don and Eric and Ivanka and his and son-in-law. T- t- who I well, find to be the hot one, but go ahead. <laughs> easy there. Uh, uh, you know. His son-in-law, Jared, who's reaping money, you know, contracts, I believe, in the low billions, you know, in, in Middle East. Uh, he's not reaping billions. He has a he's fund. striking has- deals. Yeah. But regardless of yeah. that, like all of it deserves scrutiny. I, I think it yeah. truly does. Of course. I think it, it deserves scrutiny. I think the stuff of the Supreme Court, Democrat, Republican appointees deserve scrutiny. I think that lawmakers deserve scrutiny. Like, I think it's I agree with you on that. Yeah. I think that. You know, cable news talks about of all stripes talks about news uh, more than it usually reports on news to the point that we forget that most reporting is done away from the public eye and that a lot of person power is spent doing reporting imperfectly uh, in ways that we don't see because some of it doesn't make it to print or to air, right? And I think that, what can I say? I think that a lot of the material on that laptop has been validated. And I, I went, I don't know that all of it has been, but but I know that a lot of it has been. No, there's nobody, there's no claim anymore that the laptop is Russian disinformation. Hunter is suing the, the uh, come on now. Let, let me, let, let me, this, this is, you're, 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 you're in. I didn't, I, I didn't say it was Russian information. I, I think you're, that, you're into the realm of the absurd here, and I'm going to tell you why. Bring it. Any email. Let me put it this way. As a reporter, you want to do your best to lay out what you know to be clearly the case and what you don't know to be the case. The Washington Post, for example, did an excellent job of trying to delineate and go through and say this has been clearly confirmed. This is on there, but we haven't been able to confirm it. This I, is I want to tell know. you why you're in the room. And the reason why that matters is because people like Giuliani who were involved in owning it and providing it have been shown to be – uh, not trustworthy in representations they have made in court again and again, and that matters. Okay, if 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 somebody finds Periel's laptop, and they find an email there where Periel writes to me describing what great sex we had. Oh boy! And my wife. Here's, Can we come up with a different example? And my wife hears about this email. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be with her on that one. And and my wife hears about this email. Yeah. And I said to my wife, "Well, that hasn't been confirmed. That email is accurate." She'd be like. It's written to you. Like, like, like you can tell me it's not accurate. The point being that all, everything on that laptop goes to important people. Biden's chief of staff, Biden's business partner, Biden's brother. Not one of them has come out and said, no, that's not my email. 
obviously it's their email. It's, and this is, this is part of what's angering me way back when. Not a single, Rob Walker, not one single person implicated. These are conversations. These are not diary entries where you could say, well, Hunter Biden says they're not true. And, you know, how do we know it's only he? These are to other people. Not a single one of these other people has ever said, that was not my email. Tony Bobolinsky presented audio recordings of his conversations he had with other people. Where they say, you know, and, and emails say, don't, don't say Joe's name, uh, don't, don't, don't put Joe's name in writing, he only wants it. Um, the big guy or whatever it was. Well, the big guy's been confirmed now, but at the time, there's one where Tony, Blom Tony Bobolinsky is told, don't mention Joe's name in writing, uh, only verbally. And this just goes, I think, to Rob Walker, who's one of those guys. In Rob Walker has never come out and said, no, that's, that, that text message is, is, a, is, a, is a forgery. Obviously... These are all 100% true. It's astonishing to me that anybody could even entertain that they're not true. Why, why are the people who are the victims of this forgery not saying, come over here now, look at my email account. This is, I never wrote that email. I think the funny thing is, I think we agree on more than we disagree am I saying on this. Something, am I saying something not 100% accurate here? You're saying something that is not the way in which a news executive would approach things. A news executive would, yes, they would. They would go, they would go, they would go to, this is how they would, they would say, you tell me if I'm wrong, they would say, go to Rob Walker right now, say, there's, we have an email here that's purportedly to, to sure, you, I, is that your email or not? And then, and get him on the record. And if he says no comment, well, that speaks for itself, doesn't it? But you've just told me. Have they done that? You've just told me earlier in our, our conversation several yeah. days ago yeah. that that you know reporters are wrong to derive inferences about motivations, and they're wrong to derive inferences that they think they know somebody's saying something they believe not to be true. You just told me that. I about, don't think I said that, but you but, did about the Dominion stuff. But I, I don't think that's quite what I meant. But go ahead, go ahead. Well, then forgive me. Then I, I don't mean. To but go ahead. But I'll make, make uh, let's, I, uh, let's for the sake I, of argument. Go ahead. What I'm saying is just uh, that I think a lot. Most of this stuff has been validated and verified. That's, I mean, I don't think that we have to fight over everything that hasn't been to what, agree what, on what we're saying. So what, all what I'm, I'm saying, saying is that is that though that sometimes it can't be done, and sometimes you don't know. For example, I went on the air and did a piece after, well after the original uh, Hunter Biden coverage happened, and my original writing about Hunter, yeah. the Hunter Biden story in the Post, which was somewhat skeptical yeah. because of the concerns, some of which I've uh, shared with you. I then said, here are some things, ways to think about it, some of which make me rethink about things at the time, some of which doesn't. Similarly, on the question of the lab leak, which I don't want to get in all the, the uh, debate about, but the lab leak, the way in which the press handled it, I wanted to explain. Did you read Matt Taibbi's recent thing about lab I mean, I've read a lot of Matt Taibbi. No, just, so just I don't know in, the last, in the last 24 hours. I've not. So they got a hold of a whole new uh, tranche of, uh, of email. Very exciting. I just want to make a different point, yeah. which is that, that, uh, that I revisited and said, look, there are ways in which the press, taking its cues from the public health establishment, I think did a disservice to the public's understanding of how this thing happened, which may or may not mean that it was clearly a lab leak. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that it could be. There's a lot of evidence to suggest it, there's some evidence to suggest it is. 
And there's some evidence that that might cut against that. I don't think that we have a perfectly clear cut thing because all the intelligence agencies are arguing with each other over this very thing, and not simply the health the the health establishment. Well, but that's fine. But listen, first of all, but, I invite everybody to read the the recent TIB thing because, listen, as Perry will tell you, I have been. I mean, I, I thought Fauci said some things he shouldn't have said. I didn't like what he when he told people not to buy masks when he knew better. There's a lot of things I. I Felt torn about Fauci. I thought he came down on the wrong side, but he did it for the right reasons, whatever. I, I was never a basher of Fauci, right? However, after the recent things that came out in the last 24 hours, I'm done defending him. It is unbelievable. If, if what I read is accurate, then I would have to say uh, it, he, he's villainous he, from, from what came out. In the last strong day. words. You know what? Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have not read it. Uh, I find Taibbi to be uh, provocative. I think he's often very interesting and insightful. I think he's sometimes completely off the mark. Uh, so I'd have no, to really you read it. You read it. I'm curious. We can communicate by email. It's stunning what what came out. Again, if it's taken out of content, now Taibbi's pretty straight. Um, but uh, listen, all the they get too many things wrong. They uh, as much and you don't know me. I nobody was more pro-vax than me. Nobody. I was the first business to require every customer and every employee to be vaccinated. Even before I knew it was legal, I did it. So I, 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 I second to no one in being pro-vax. But it became clear at some point that people with uh, um, natural immunity were safe. It became clear at some point that people who were very young uh, didn't need it. And most importantly, it became very clear that although the vaccine at first we thought was like a polio thing, which would eradicate the disease, that it that that jackass Alex Berenson actually had it right, that this really was just something that, you, almost like a medication. If you took the vaccine, you wouldn't get as sick, but it really didn't do anything to uh, stop the spread, or very little to stop the spread, and it certainly didn't prevent you from getting it. And these, and at that point, I remember saying, well, this is just ridiculous. Now, why why do we continue with this with this?" charade who cares if anybody's vaccinated or any all matters that i'm vaccinated i won't get as sick it used to be that if, if you were vaccinated that meant you didn't have covid i could i could feel safe you have covid at some point almost a year before they finally let up on this in the in the media everybody i knew that had covid was vaccinated and in new york everybody was vaccinated everybody had covid and you couldn't and 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 they never adjusted their stories to real life it, and and they would and all all the way until recently they'd say wear a mask even a cloth mask and from time to time like CNN would have sort of wear cloth mask is just theater you know how many people got sick because they were told to wear cloth masks the CDC I think in the name of equity because cloth masks are free and you can to the very end, was recommending that people wear cloth masks. I think that's very different from uh, some of the Berenson assertions. But yes, I think some of the stuff about the mask, particularly, I think that there's a cost. Let me just say this. I, I, think, think, I think Berenson is a fraud, by the way, but he was right about this. Yeah, go ahead. Well, he was right. Uh, let me demur on some of that on Berenson. But but just let's just agree to disagree on him to some degree. But but let's focus you on don't, the— You don't think he's a fraud? No. <laughs> I uh, said he's a fraud, but he was correct your that words, the, vaccine, not mine. the vaccines wouldn't stop the spread. That's what he said. And they didn't stop the spread. I mean— The whole Omicron wave happened while everybody was vaccinated. Sure, but not everybody was vaccinated, actually. This country moves about a bunch, and it's even—I mean, Everybody we know and everybody you know who got Omicron, which is probably basically everybody you know, had been vaccinated. I was vaccinated, and I got it this year for the first time. A everybody but, who but got I it— I also went— 
you know, two and a half, over two and a half years without getting it. Yeah, but I'm saying that when in New York in, in the November and December of 2021, when it became a ghost town, in the, it was all among vaccinated people. See, you're, this, is, this is astonishing to me because you're a guy in good faith. You're super smart. You know everything. There's some reason it's hard for you to just admit, yeah, they got that completely wrong and they refused to look at the evidence. They allowed people like Tucker and, and, other, and Brent Weinstein, these people who are very questionable, to, to put it mildly, they allowed them to get the upper hand in what happened was they present 80% garbage, but 20% of what Tucker was saying, he was the only person who had the nerve to say it because the Times and the rest of them were so all in into this clickish yeah, listen, let's, peer let, pressure let's, let's, thing let's, as opposed to just saying what's true. Let's we thought the vaccines worked. Now we realize they're not working. Yes, of course, there should be a, a, a thing for natural immunity. By the way, Europe is not – kids aren't dying from COVID. Europe is letting all their kids go to school. Everything now that they're, they're hand-wringing about that they got wrong – this is not new data. They knew it at the time. Listen, I think that from my perspective yeah. and having talked to uh, f- not as many public health officials as I do public health journalists because I cover the media, but I do talk to some public health officials or, you know, uh, people who study disease and public health and medicine and all these things. Uh I wouldn't affirm all of your conclusions on that, but I would say. Well, tell me why a- I'm wrong trying to get there yeah i would say that that you know the pronouncements of public officials and public health officials have consequences when you say i know that you say it's from a good place but when you say to people uh you don't need to wear masks it's fine because you're desperately trying to hoard them for public health frontliners i understand it sounds like you understand why you do that but that kind of clear deception carries a later cost and toll for me the thing about the cloth masks, similarly, uh, that it chips away at the trust that people have. I do think from talking to uh, researchers and officials and, and, and mostly public health reporters at different outlets who may approach it different ways, uh, I do think their level of knowledge changed on this a lot. You know, like they, they were they invented the vaccine on the fly, which is a miracle. Not them, but the, the researchers at these these companies did that in concert, often with academic and you know federal folks. But they're also their their state of knowledge of this stuff is on the fly too. Okay, but this is a pattern to to an argument. I'm not. I may sound worse than what I mean it to be, but yes, there was a point in time, both with the laptop and with certain COVID things when the reporting reflected accurately what was known. And then it became political. And then the knowledge shifted. And because it had become political, reporters en masse dug in and refused to relent to, 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 to update what more and more people said, what are you doing? Yeah, we all, we all thought that, but now you sound like an idiot. And this was the same thing with Hunter. Like, I got it first, the Hunter the laptop. I didn't know whether it was real or not. It was ridiculous. It was hard to believe a guy. But then I read, well, actually, the FBI has this. And then I'm like, wait a second. And then the Wall Street Journal says, we didn't run it because there, was no, there were no documents that showed Joe Biden's name. 
but the but the accusation had been that Joe Biden's name had been but pur- do you, do purposely believe, left off. Do the you documents. believe that a, a news organization that's perhaps known as, along with the Associated Press, the most down kind of trying to be down the middle and fair? Not on Israel, they're not the AP. But go ahead. Let's talk about on domestic issues. Yeah. Let's just leave aside the AP. Talk about the Wall Street Journal. I think in some ways it, it tries very hard, very, very scrupulously. It's the, be- the best of all from the Wall Street. Be journal. very fair down the middle. Their newsroom, but owned by Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Right. Like owned yeah, by Rupert Murdoch. Someone might use that as evidence to say Rupert Murdoch actually is pretty has integrity with the Wall Street Journal. I think it is useful to him, but I think also think he's very proud of it. And but I think, I think he's hands off. Work. He seems to be hands off. Uh, well, uh, the best example of that was uh, during the Theranos scandal, where uh, uh, Rupert had invested twenty five million dollars of himself in this what proved to be a either fr- I, I guess and he let them cover it. And he didn't touch it. He just said, you know, the the uh, Elizabeth Holmes called him and said, you know, get your reporter off it. His reporter wasn't simply covering it. His reporter was uncovering it. Right. And he said, do your, you know, they get to do their work. That's not how this this operates. And that's to his great credit. And I've talked about that many times because it's right. It was a big moment. And he, you know, he lost 25 million ducks, bucks, but he kept his integrity. <laughs> he doesn't care about 25 million. No, bucks. he doesn't. But I'm just saying he <laughs> yeah. kept his integrity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So fine. So we have, um, oh, we have to wrap it up. Go ahead. Yeah. So all I'm saying is if the Wall Street Journal, yeah. which is a newsroom that I think tries exceptionally hard to operate from a nonpartisan shop with integrity, who happens to be owned by a clear cut Trump yes, ally yes. politically, yeah. says we can't authenticate this in a way that we feel comfortable with. I think that you've got to say maybe they tried very hard to report on this and it didn't happen. At first, and then, and they, then they did great reporting on. And it. then they recovered. They they did, but then the rest didn't. The rest the rest had to be dragged into it. And and like I say, and the notion that this is the same, uh, like the, no, it's, we're just going to buy the books. It's exactly the way we'd handle it. I mean, how many Trump stories? Look, it took two years before other papers besides the the Wall, Washington Post really took Watergate seriously. You know, like it takes time for people to catch up in their reporting and their sources, their conclusions, the whole thing. We live in a more immediate time and more immediate world. But I think the Hunter Biden response was flawed. But I also think the folks bringing it are not people that you can instantly say, I totally think that they have faith because they've always brought me uh, accurate information and true information in the past. Well, I agree with that. But there's there's also two there's two layers to it, which is once one is that at first. It was tough to swallow, so you're afraid to cover it. But the other one is, and this is... And, but it's, listen, it's not listen, wait, 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 It's not that tough to cover. Hunter Biden was known as a drug addict okay. and as somebody who probably had done all kinds of illegal things. Do you remember so it's how not the, an impossible do, thing. Do you, remember how the, had, do you remember how the Steele dossier got into the news? I do, and can I tell you something else? BuzzFeed published it verbatim, and people, I think rightly, as I said, expressed at the time and subsequently feel more strongly, were saying, this hasn't been authenticated. They shouldn't put the whole thing out. Right. And I thought that about something that was negative towards Trump. Right. But once it was out, everybody covered it, even though it was not authenticated. People, nobody treated the bund- the laptop the same way. Nobody said that it's not authenticated, but this is what it says. Maybe they learned a lesson. Well, no. Well, no, I don't think they learned But a maybe they did the thing that they should have done with the Steele dossier in the first place. No. Which is hold off until they can validate it. Right. But as I've said already, by October, we already knew... The difference between the Steele dossier and the Hunter Biden laptop is that the the Steele dossier was impossible to verify because it was information coming from Kremlin sources with it, it, that that was you know not so easy to verify. 
everything on a laptop was verifiable within 48 hours. It was. All you had to do was get the person on the phone who is on the other end of these emails. And to the extent that they won't answer, that's a story in and of itself. And then you ask the president, why are they not answering? How can you say it's a hoax? If it's a hoax, why are... It's so obvious. Again, it's so obvious. I, I'm, I, I don't get it. it, it it's, they should be ashamed of themselves. And they got it wrong. So, but circling back, and that's why we should be very careful about these new standards that if the reporter, if we find out afterwards that the reporter had a personal belief about it, that's evidence that they knew they shouldn't report it. Because unless the reporter actually has firsthand information about something as a factual matter, nobody, it doesn't matter what they believe about a story. What matters is what they knew and did they or did they not report accurately what they knew. So let me express something That's you may I mean. agree with. Yeah. And it won't take it super long. I know, okay. we got, I know okay. we're over. Yeah. Go, go. It's that, you know, there used to be a time where people would say, report what she says, report what he says. You've got the information. That's a fair way to do it. You present it, you go. The way news has evolved, for good and for ill, is that there's an idea instead of uh, perfect balance, fairness. And so the idea is you're fair. But sometimes people misunderstand what I think what fairness means. I think fairness means, yes, fairness to you, fairness to him, fairness uh, to the people you're reporting on, whether or not they're part of the story uh, or, or, you know, are are participating in the story. Uh, Fairness uh, to your audience so that they have context to understand it and fairness to the facts. And that, that sometimes means reporting what you know and what you don't know and being clear about it and just being maybe a little less uh, seemingly concrete or certain that you have all the information that you need to evaluate this. Being fair to those facts. That fairness is the ideal, I think, that people strive for and often fail to get. But um, in the heat of the moment, people make the wrong choices. In the heat of the moment, I think the problem is, as has been a problem for decades but plays out in different ways, people go as a pack. And so they all go one way, they all go the other way. But there is this, you know, uh, what shall I say? People have accused the press for many years of being liberal and whatever, but there is in many ways this sort of conservative infrastructure, which is some of which is part of the press and some of which is not, but all of which is interested in, shall we say, undermining the press's standing and credibility. Let me make a point. I know. Right, then I let you go. If no. Jesse Waters had um, a one-on-one, uh, Jesse Waters, I can't believe you got that spot. If he had a one-on-one interview with um, Biden and he asked me what to ask him. I say, ask him in the debate when you said the laptop was a hoax, did you know it wasn't a hoax? And he would say, oh, that's a good question. I'll ask him. If you had a one-on-one with Joe Biden and I told you to ask him that, I don't think you'd ask him. I think you wouldn't want to be disrespectful. I think that, it, that you are part of that. And I don't, I don't, it sounds like I'm being nasty. I don't mean it. I just, I, it, take it, not personalize but even, it to like, you. If you, t- if you the, take, the, the, if you take the, Brett Bayer, for example, at the, Fox. The community that you represent they used they they used to be very oppositional uh, to everybody. I'm I'm the uh, ambassador and plenipotentiary. NPR is a good uh, synecdoche for uh, for everything, but um, the NPR uh, of the uh, the NPR would not ask Biden such an obvious question. It's like you looked in the camera. It it, it amounts I would match, to. Let me just say yeah. this: I would match uh, Steve Inskeep, Michelle Martin, or a bunch of our hosts against any tough interviewer on any network. Okay, I don't know him uh, that much, but I, I, I'm I, just I, saying that yeah. those guys uh, uh, in a 
respectful way will task the toughest questions imaginable, and they're terrific. Well, I have yet to see anybody not uh, part of the Fox Post, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I think it's com- valid to ask Fox questions about. Listen, com- I think it's complex. valid to ask questions about Joe Biden. We it's know. Not a we know now that the president went in that debate and he looked in the camera and said, "This is a hoax," and we know now he was lying. Do you know that he knew that it was that he was lying? Of course he knew. Of course he knew. Do you have documentation to show that? Well, then that's why you ask him. But sure. I, I, I think uh, it's, it's almost, he had to have, how, st- then they, what you're telling me is he shouldn't be president of the United States. There are emails there with his close associates. Are you telling me Biden never called up Rob Walker or his brother and said, is that, are those your emails? Are you, that he, 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 he aggressively showed enough disinterest. I just want to go up there and say it's a hoax. So please, I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm not going to. He, he had every obligation to take 30 seconds and find out whether it was a hoax or not. It was completely available to him. This, you're, you're proving my point. Look at, look at the, the somersaults. You're turning yourself into this guy. I've, listen, you're this not, you're, guy went up there and said it's a hoax. Overwhelmingly, if we feel he should have his finger on the button, we have to assume it's very, very likely he knew it was not a hoax. If he didn't know it was not a hoax, he is he's a real problem. But I'm just saying, has anybody yet asked him that tough question? Mr. President, you told us it was a hoax. What's your explanation? They used to do that to Clinton. When Clinton pointed to the camera and said, I never had sex with that woman and turned out to be a lie, it was a big deal that he was lying. This is it's exactly the same type of thing. The, the, the difficulty is, you know, despite hearings on the Hill, which people follow for the right reasons, which is they could produce something that's very damning about Biden himself, who's the president of the United States. Yeah. You're asking him about the actions and misdeeds and possible crimes of his son that took place not in his no presence. crimes. Uh, he was taking coke and he was, you know, he had gun and he did other stuff like, you know, there are crimes involved. Some of the money stuff m- might amount to it. He didn't report certain I think there's a question whether you reported certain income in that. but That's different than saying it's a hoax. You're, you're, look, you're a reporter and you're excusing his lying because you feel not, sorry for the dad. You're not listening to me. I'm saying that, that it's, it's a different question to ask a president about his own personal activity and things. People can ask the president that. I don't have any ob- ob- objection to that because I think— Don't they have a responsibility to ask the president I that? think it's reasonable to ask the president Not reasonable. About- don't they? It was a presidential debate. It was a big issue. If he had said, no, I have to admit that laptop is real— who knows? The election came down to a very small number of votes. It's a consequential event. He looked in the camera and he probably lied. I'll give you maybe he didn't lie. Maybe either way, we want to understand what went on. No reporter feels that question goes to the top of the the, the, the list. It's crazy. I don't I don't get it. It's be, I, we know the reason because they support him. That's the reason. But you are doing the thing that you attack reporters for doing, I think, in some instances, wrongly. But you're saying you are supposing that that's why reporters do that. Yes. Let me just finish. Yeah, I know and what you're report- saying. Go ahead. Well, I'm doing it for the benefit of our podcast listeners who may not. Are You're assuming that reporters are not asking that for a particular reason because they have partisan rooting interests. Right. That's what you think. I think that those question, that it is legitimate to ask president about the activities of his son or his brother or anyone else who does things, particularly taking revenue, violating federal law. He's the chief head of the federal, you know, the executive branch of the federal government, but also, you know, that put him in a position of accepting money from foreign interests. I think that's absolutely legit to ask him about. On the other hand, you know, you're also, you know, you know, and I think our 
viewers and listeners and readers deserve to make whatever conclusions they want to make about the propriety of um, uh, the answers. They can decide they, they, they hate him, will never vote for him as a result of those answers. They can decide they support him. They can decide it's not of any consequence to them. That's fine. Not a problem for the reporter involved. I do think that when you've got a, an adult child, it's not a child, an adult son who has so flagrantly screwed up his life in public view that uh, tonally hammering a public official for that portion of that person's life is a, uh, it's a hard ask. Asking him, did you think that was a hoax at the time or were you saying that to defend your son might be a way of getting at that question. Simply, or did you think it was, were you saying to defend your son? You're, gonna, you're, you're feeding him his excuse answer? You say, you said it was a hoax. All right, so wh why did you say that? Did, did you believe that to be the case? That's fine. People can ask that question. I just don't think it's the most interesting question of a guy who's been in office for three years. There uh, are other things you can hold him see, this accountable is, for. This is exactly, I'm happy, I'm happy I let you talk. You don't think it's that interesting. Do you understand that 48% of America finds it very interesting because they feel that their president lied to them and that's the reason that lie might have greased the skids for his election. And this is because you, you don't find it interesting because No, no, I didn't say that. You, I didn't say it. I, you I said would I thought... find it interesting if Trump had told if Trump had told a big lie and then My friend, you're you're forgetting that Trump told lies repeatedly over the course of his presidency. And I didn't think that him being asked every time about Eric or Don Jr. or Ivanka was the most interesting question to ask Trump either. His policies had effects that affected hundreds of millions of Americans. So am I to take from this that you think the news is playing it straight? They treat, they treat Biden the same way they treated Trump. I think they are playing to paying, uh, what can I say? I think they are treating the most conventionally establishment politician president that we've had in a long time uh, differently than they've treated the most unconventional, unpolitician president that we've had probably ever. Does that mean it's fair? I don't know. They, I think they treated them differently. But I do think they are also two, they are inherently two very different figures in the American presidency and American history. And that doesn't mean that you treat one better than the other. Right. It just means that there's going to be and, a difference. And only on Fox and the Wall Street Journal are personal feelings responsible for the way coverage goes. Uh, I wouldn't say that because I can't, I don't have access to it. What I can tell you is that it's less personal feeling. To be honest, the thing about the Dominion case that originally attracted your interest, although we talked a lot about the younger Biden, is that the Dominion case was fascinating because you don't have to rely on what my sources inside Fox tell me and I relay to the world. You're relying on their own words. What turned out to be the most interesting thing is what was presented to the American public through Fox and particularly to an audience that by and large was more inclined to support Trump than not, uh, contradicted not their personal sentiments, but what they thought the evidence showed to be true. These were people who by and large were often supportive of Trump versus Biden and said empirically, he lost this race, not simply over the machines, but that he just lost this race full stop. And they said, we can't tell our audience that we are damaging our brand. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. So that, that to me was the interesting thing, not, it's, it's, it's a much simpler story to say, oh, they're conservatives, they want this. No, they were- And MSNBC didn't want to tell their audience that the Biden laptop was real or, or likely. They, did, they, did, they certainly didn't tell their audience that the Biden laptop was in the hands of the FBI. They didn't tell them that. 
I just haven't looked at the transcript, so I, I, I no, believe I, you. But I, 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 I did. I did hard Google searches. You know, site dot. dot yeah, it's just all, been a while since I, I, yeah, yeah, I delved I, into it, all it, this. All, okay, all, we're gonna yeah, do round three. This is gonna be two episodes because okay. that's how long we've been recording. No, we gotta go. We, we can cut. We'll, no, we'll play this whole episode on on our thing, and and Lou will cut it down for for serious. That's sure. Fine. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. I find this stuff endlessly fascinating. Maybe you'll come back for another. I, I, I also find it endlessly fascinating that what seems to me so clear to me which is that um, journalism is more than ever before part of, you know, saw itself, became, became part of the resistance and is so populated now by people of a certain profile. But if you'd started talking about that, we could, I, we've had a lot of the profile, consensus on I know, that. I know, the profile because, of you and me, elite people. But, but uh, forget, forget about that. Like, no, it's part of it. But that's fine. But I'm just saying, there's truth to that. I think there was truth to that in on cable in particular, on CNN, as much as MSNBC. I think that happened in major newsrooms where the times tonally shift in that direction. And the Washington Post, which actually I think tried to do it more down the center, nonetheless did nonetheless did endless coverage of the same bites at the Apple because it fed an audience that desperately wanted it. And once Trump was out of office, a lot of those ratings subsided, a lot of those clicks abated, and you know, there were uh, what can I say, financial models built around that. On the other hand, what happened in some ways was that the caricature of the press as a, an explicitly liberal part of the political establishment, which had some truth to it, but was not totally right, uh, was, let me just say this, was foisted, I feel, by elements of the conservative uh, sort of counter-establishment they built Fox in the image of the newsrooms they claimed the left were building, and then you saw some of these other sites going in that direction. You read you read Eric Wemple's blog where he explained why it is that nobody objected when uh, Bennett got fired when he ran the Tom Cotton editorial, where he essentially say, you know, just says it. I mean, I wrote a lot about that too, but and Eric did great work on that, but I don't remember. I mean, he said he, he said everything I'm saying now is like you know you just couldn't do it. It was, the, the pressure was just so hard. It, it, it's it's clickish. I maybe some words in his mouth. It's clickish. But, you know, through this podcast, I've gotten to know all these journalists and they're 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 all they all come from the same. They believe the same things. They read the same things. One of my advantages on this podcast has been it's amazing what they don't know. Like, uh, you know, what? Let, let's wrap this up. I want to tell a story off the air. Uh, um, so anyway, I want to thank you for coming. Um, you, I'm, ha I'm hanging out with our, our mutual friend tomorrow night if you want to come down and join us in, in the olive tree. You, nice. Uh, I wish I, I've, I've got, uh, I've got uh, small ones to attend. But, and our, uh, our mutual friend is someone who got treated very badly. But uh, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Nicole, that's it. Good night, everybody.